We are witnessing highway robbery in broad daylight. Well, hey, at least there are witnesses. That's an improvement. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. Well, they know how recounts go up in Minnesota, don't they? We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Trying to make sense of it all as we've got, once again, another day with uh, breaking news just before we go to air. And this one, uh, this one a tough story that I'm trying to figure out uh, concerning, wow, what just happened in Virginia we will talk about that momentarily, but uh, first, as you may have heard, the GOP finally passed their huge tax cuts for the rich and corporations, at least mostly for the rich and corporations, on Wednesday. It'll now be signed by the president. It has not been, uh, if it hasn't been uh, signed yet by the time you hear this show. Donald Trump apparently thinks it repeals Obamacare as well. It doesn't. It does repeal the mandate to own health insurance, however, and that will result, according to the non nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, in some 13 million Americans losing health care and everyone else's premiums going up about 10 percent year over year. Uh, that's just part of the problem, of course, with these uh, with the supposed tax cuts which will also raise taxes on the poor and middle class and raise a whole bunch of other expenses like medical care and cut things like Medicare, uh, some $25 billion, unless new action, additional action, is taken by Congress. Anyway, more on those tax cuts in a moment. And with my guest, Jeet here of the New Republic, Uh, along with his thoughts on whether Democrats now are overly obsessed with the impeachment of Donald Trump as we head into the mid-year elections. Uh, So uh, that's coming up shortly. But first, speaking of elections, (laughs) wow, some very big news today on that front. 
two different stories, actually. One of them not as big, so let me do the uh, let me do the easy one first. Republican Roy Moore in Alabama has not yet conceded his 20,000 vote loss to Democrat Doug Jones in Alabama's Senate race and provisional ballots and military votes are still being counted, but they show that Moore cannot close the deficit as reported by the optical scan, uh, paper ballot optical scanners in Alabama and the results that they came up with on election night. Jones had reportedly beaten Moore on December 12 to become the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama in a quarter century. That after Moore was beset by allegations of sexual misconduct involving teenage girls decades ago. The Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill announced Wednesday that a total of 366 military ballots were returned from overseas and uh, just under 5,000 provisional ballots were cast in the race. So that would be short. Even if all of them went to Roy Moore, that would be short of the 20,000 votes that he lags behind Doug Jones uh, after the hand-marked paper ballots in Alabama have been tallied by the uh, by the optical scan systems there. So Alabama will certify those election results, including the counts from the overseas votes and whatever provisional ballots are still to be included. Um, the uh, certification will happen sometime between December 26 and January 3rd. Moore has been out fundraising, uh, asking supporters for donations to fund a fraud investigation in Alabama. I wish him luck in that score. Uh, I've, of course, he could also ask for a recount, but the Alabama law does not allow him to have a recount if his margin is higher than half of one percent. And even if there were to be a recount in Alabama, it would be done on the same optical scan machines which tallied the ballots either correctly or incorrectly the first time. That, according to state law, uh, seems insane that a candidate shouldn't be able to at least pay for his own count and, frankly, his own hand count should the candidate, uh, he or she, wish to have one. But uh, apparently that is not an option in Alabama, so it looks, barring a uh, miracle of some sort, it looks like, Democrat Doug Jones will, in fact, be heading to the U.S. Senate after the first of the year. Uh, in the, OK, so that was the easy story. Here's the tough one. Uh, <laughs> well, you may have heard just after we got off air on uh, yesterday after yesterday's show, huge news broke out of Virginia. A single vote in Newport News, the city of Newport News, Virginia, this from Politico is set to give Democrats partial control of the Virginia State House of Delegates and could help the party pass an expansion of Medicaid finally in that state under the Affordable Care Act that would give medical coverage to some 400,000 residents in the state next year if they're able to get that passed. They've had a Democratic Governor, but the uh, Republican uh, uh, Senate and the House of Delegates in particular has blocked the expansion of health care for nearly half a million people. But uh, following the elections a few weeks ago, the off year elections in November in Virginia, uh, an incredible thing happened. 
A whole bunch of voters turned out for those elections, and what had been a 64, 30, uh, 66-34 advantage for Republicans in the House of Delegates went away, just disappeared as, um, well, at least 15 Republicans were turned out of their seats, and there were about uh, four other really close races that have now been going through uh, recounts in the state of Virginia. Well, after a recount conducted on Tuesday, Democrat Shelley Simons had 11,608 votes, and the incumbent Republican David Yancey had 11,607 votes, one vote shy in the Virginia's uh, in Virginia's 94th House district. So Simons' victory. There was by one vote, and that victory means that Republicans will lose their decades of control of the House of Delegates in Virginia, resulting in a 50-50 split in the House and a some sort of power-sharing agreement between the two parties. Well, the Republican Yancey in that race had led going into that so-called recount by 10 votes, just 10 votes, based on the optical scan machine tallies. In Virginia, recounts, like in Alabama, are held by running the ballots back through the optical scanners again. But the ones that are rejected by the machines are then examined by hand. Now, uh, it's unclear to me at this hour whether uh, whether votes uh, seen as undervotes by the machines, in other words, not recording a vote for either candidate, it's unclear to me whether those ballots are actually checked by hand or not to ensure that any marks that were too light for the machine to be read, for instance, that those get tabulated correctly. Um, but uh, in any event, <laughs> as of uh, Tuesday night, the Democrats had taken away Republicans' majority uh, of the House of Delegates by one single vote. Now, mind you, this all happened in uh, in the same year that Virginia finally got rid of their 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. And what do you know? They get rid of those systems, and the Democrats end up flipping 15. 16 seats as of Tuesday night from Republican to Democrat. So make of that what you will. But uh, that was not the end, even though Republicans on Tuesday night had conceded the contest, admitted they would not hold a majority in 2019. uh, Something happened the next day. On Wednesday, and this all happened sort of within the last hour or two before airtime, and I've been trying to figure it out, trying to figure out exactly what happened. But on Tuesday night, as the Virginia pilot reports, um, one concerned election official had some second thoughts about one single ballot by Wednesday morning. The recount that had supposedly given Democrat Shelley Simons a one vote victory was in court today. One ballot at the center of this dispute with bubbles that were filled in for both the Democrat Shelley Simons and the Republican David Yancey. A single slash runs through Simons' bubble and a three-judge panel ruled uh, just after 2 p.m. this afternoon that the vote should be counted for the Republican Yancey making the entire thing a tie 
11,608 votes each. Uh, just incredible for a whole bunch of reasons. Now, the way that the uh, Virginia uh, uh, elections work here is if there is a tie, it's essentially decided by a flip of a coin, by drawing a lot and uh, at, at random. And that will determine, at least as of now, if all of this holds, that will determine whether the Republicans retain their majority across the House of Delegates and across all of the committees in that House, or whether there will have to be a power-sharing agreement of some sort with Democrats. Now, uh, there, there's more to this story, and I'm trying to sort it out. Desi Doyen, have you had a chance to look at the ballot in question, this one single ballot in question? I have had a chance to look at an image of the ballot that was posted online, right. and it does appear that the person who was voting that particular ballot was trying to vote a full Republican ticket, but of course it's kind of unclear that maybe they were trying to cross out the vote for the Democrat and instead vote for the Republican. What I'd like to see would be a full hand count of the the entire race, because that might actually help determine this. Uh, especially since instead you're talking of, about one vote either way. Yeah, yeah and, and instead of putting it up to a coin toss, which to me just seems dramatically stupid. Well, looking at this ballot in question, and there's a lot of people looking at this ballot now that it was just released before airtime. Uh, prior to that, they wouldn't allow them to take a photo. For some reason, they allowed reporters to look at it, but they wouldn't allow them to take a photograph. So uh, the reporters were putting out mock-ups of this. And basically, yeah, you've got uh, two candidates uh, in the race seem to be selected in the 94th district, both Shelley Simons um, and David Yancey, the Republican. The, the, the bubbles, there's a bubble next to both of their names. They're both filled in, but there is one, a single slash through the Democrats' bubble there. Elsewhere on the ballot... Uh, you're right. All of the choices uh, where there was a Democrat or a Republican on the race were uh, the Republican was chosen, except in uh, for governor, where there also appears to be a slash through well, Ed an, Gillespie's. A, an X through the selection for Ed Gillespie. And in that case, there is no second vote. So it's unclear whether that vote was trying to say, no, don't vote for Ed Gillespie or do vote for Ed Gillespie. But at least it's not an overvote as as the uh, the the judges the um, the the panel of uh, th three election officials uh, originally had judged this one in the 94th district they thought that was an overvote so it was thrown out it was not counted but then that Republican official had second thoughts about all of this. And he says, well, this was his first time doing this. He wasn't clear. He thought it was a vote for the Republican, but the Democrat thought otherwise. So they decided to not count it at all. And then later, apparently, he changed his mind. Now, and then this ended up in, in court today where the court ended up uh, saying, yes, in fact, this was a Republican vote. So I've been trying to make sense of all of this. And about what happens next. Well, what happens next, uh, well, that you're right, that is unclear. I mean, what happens next, according to the law, is that there will be a random uh, draw of some sort to determine uh, who will be the winner, the Republican or the Democrat. And whoever does not win that draw does have the right to ask for a second recount, a second I say so-called recount because it's really a retally where they run the machines straight through the ballots again. You can be almost assured that whoever does not win this draw 
will ask for these ballots to be counted all over again, as they should. And I hope that it uh, hope that it happens by hand well, this time. Yes, two, that's two good things. There at least are now paper ballots in Virginia so that voter intent can be recorded and in some way perhaps discerned. Um, and the other good part is, hey, notice how the optical, optical scan machines got the count wrong? Well, yeah, well, actually, I don't know if they got them wrong or not, because it's not yet clear to me if this was a ballot that was uh, rejected okay. by the as an overvote by the optical scan machines. Okay. I, I believe that it was. That's like I say, fair. all of this is unclear. But going through the there's actually a Virginia counting guidelines handbook. And I know, uh, you know, a lot of Democrats think, well, this is outrageous. This is ridiculous. This is clearly an overvote. There was two people selected, even though there was a slash through one of them. This should have been thrown out. Well, according to the uh, Virginia counting guidelines, uh, I'm, you know, probably not going to make a lot of uh, Democratic friends by noting this, but it's going to come up no matter what. Uh, Any ballot which is marked for more than one candidate for the office shall be deemed an overvote and no vote shall be counted except as provided in this section. And it gives a whole bunch of different pictures of the types of ballots, whether they should be counted or not, the various things that can happen. One of them, for example, if they don't choose any, if they don't fill in any of the bubbles and they just write over the candidate's name in all capitals, my man, that will be counted. Because that, that's that voter suppo- intent. Well, that is supposed to be counted according to okay. the uh, according to the guidelines. In any event, um, if it's an overvote, it shall not be counted except if there are identical marks for two or more candidates clarified by an additional mark or marks that appear to indicate support. In that case, the ballot shall be counted as a vote for the candidate with the additional clarifying mark. So if there was... Two bubbles both filled in, and the, but there was a great big arrow that they drew pointing to one of them. You'd select the one that had the great big arrow. Or if there was a big X mark through one of them, you would count the one that didn't have the X mark through it. So whether this slash is a selection um, or meant to be a, an X to say don't vote here, at least to me, remains unclear. One other provision in the guidelines handbook says any ballot that has any mark in the target areas for the candidate uh, and on which the marks in the target areas or candidate areas for any other candidates have been partially erased or scratched out or otherwise obliterated shall be counted as a vote for the candidate for which the mark was not erased. And in that case, they show, uh, you know, two votes, two bubbles filled in, but one of them is clearly scratched out, is clearly X'd out. So, that's not the case that we have here. This is very, very unclear. The the Democrat, where do I have this uh, statement somewhere here from? Ah, yes, from Mark Elias, the repo- reliable uh, Democratic election attorney who shows up in all sorts of close elections like this, uh, said today's decision by the court was wrong and delegate elect he called her delegate-elect. Shelley Simons should have been certified the winner. We are currently assessing all legal options before us as we fight for a just result. The Republicans themselves had affirmed that this result was accurate yesterday before changing their minds today. After conceding this seat and their majority, they are now desperately trying to claw, to claw both of them back like a snarling dog that won't let go of a bone. 
Well, it is, you know, control of the Virginia state legislature and potentially health care for millions of people. Yeah, well, we're at least half a million people, but yeah, okay, absolutely half a million right. People. Yeah. And so uh, I understand why both of them uh, want that. The Republicans themselves are saying, aha, see, we wanted every vote counted. And now that has happened. And the, the Republican has won. So this is amazing. We will watch what happens uh, in the days ahead. Um, the other question, I had a number of other questions, and very quickly, one of them, are there any ballot, digital ballot images from this race? We've been talking about this uh, quite a bit over the past couple of days, that these optical scanners, the newer ones, actually create digital ballot images when they are when the ballots are first run through them. And the question is, do election officials have those systems set to retain those images after the tabulation has happened, because when I looked at this, one of my thoughts was, well, you know what? It would be pretty easy to put that slash through the Democrats name if someone wanted to at some point during the chain of custody for these paper ballots. So was that slash there when these ballots were actually scanned? Turns out, as far as I can tell, the city of Newport News does use those newer um, a type of scanners that allow for digital ballot images, the ESNS DS200, as it's called. Whether they retain those ballot images, whether they have that uh, feature turned on, that I don't yet know. I've been, uh, I have a query out to the registrar there in Newport News, but I spoke with another election official. Um, I should say I heard from them. Uh, we chatted via Twitter, uh, a Republican election official in Virginia who tells me that their uh, machines do, in fact, have that capability, but it's unclear whether they are turned on or not. He does not know. So that remains to be seen. And um, somebody had responded to all of this uh, to say, I will state with 100 percent certainty that if the GOP candidate was up by one, a ballot like this for the Democrat would not be counted. Shiro Kabocha said Florida 2000 tells me that hard to make uh, hard to argue against that. Uh, Tom Guerra also noted, and this is sort of above and beyond uh, the question of this one ballot and this one race. But uh, Tom Garrett Guerra of BuzzFeed uh, noted the extraordinary Virginia House election where Democrats took 53% of the vote, Republicans took just 43% of the vote. Now, he's talking about all of the races in the House of Delegates. Uh, Democrats took 53, Republicans took 43%. Now, after winning a seat by one vote, this was last night, the House is still split 50-50. Just to give you an idea how Republicans who had controlled the state legislature in Virginia, how desperately uh, gerrymandered those districts were, that even when Democrats win across the state by 10 percent, at best, they what they can hope for is a 50-50 House split. That's how partisan gerrymandering works, and that's how Republicans have been undermining democracy in state after state that they control. One other point here. Um, there are There is another uh, recount ahead. A uh, recount is set uh, for Thursday in another district where the Republican in that case leads by 82 votes, but Democrats are challenging that 
uh, entirely. They won a new election because more than 100 voters were mistakenly given ballots for a different legislative district. Given the wrong ballots? Yeah. Oh, my. So uh, decided by 82 votes, and yet 100 voters got the wrong ballot. So... Uh, that one seems to me like there ought to be a revote entirely because I don't know how you settle that one. Uh, so more on these uh, Virginia House races, I suspect, in the days ahead. But meantime, uh, just before 1 a.m. on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, the Senate finally passed on a party line vote the most significant overhaul of the tax code in three decades. It is wildly unpopular. A new NBC Wall Street Journal survey says that 24 percent of Americans think the bill is a good idea. That's just 24 percent versus 41 percent who believe it's a bad idea. That's up from 35 percent back in October. Opposition to the bill has uh, popped uh, 10 points in CNN's polling since last month. Uh, it's wildly unpopular. Yet Paul Ryan says he has no concerns about that. House Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, that once uh, once people see what they're going to get back in their paychecks, uh, that's going to make this popular somehow. Don't know if he's right or wrong about that. Mitch McConnell, for his part, has made uh, his strategy clear for all of this. He plans to paint Democrats who oppose this bill and who hopefully will run against it next year in the midterms. Uh, as uh, as if they are calling for raising taxes on the American people. My view of this, if we can't sell this to the American people, we ought to go into another line of work. Every single Democrat voted for this. They're all committed to repealing it and raising taxes on the American people. That's what's at stake in the fall of 2018. So you see, Democrats are uh, invested in raising people's taxes. That's how they're going to run. So are Democrats prepared to counter that message with their own message in 2018? Or are they over-relying on the unpopularity of Donald Trump and uh, in hopes for damaging revelations by special counsel Robert Robert Mueller uh, that could lead to impeachment to the president of the United States? We will look at that debate and uh, discuss it with Jeet here of the New Republic, who says Democrats are still putting far too much hope into Donald Trump's impeachment. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the broadcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, James Homan of the Washington Post interviewed a dozen different GOP operatives 
yesterday to get a sense of how they plan to sell the currently wildly unpopular Republican tax legislation to voters in 2018 before next year's important midterm elections when the entire House of Representatives will be up for re-election along with one-third of the U.S. Senate. The consensus among those Republican operatives seemed to be that while the view of the tax bill was historically low right now, it could only go up in 2018. Well, there's a positive way to look at it, uh, at least if they sell it as a great achievement and keep reminding voters that the majority of them will see a tax cut, uh, a cut in their in their taxes, at least in the short term. Uh, They don't want to bring up or highlight that short term part, but that they will see a cut most Americans in their taxes in 2018. Corey Bliss, the executive director of the American Action Network, a group aligned with House leadership, said our fate in 2018 is tied to the tax bill. There's no faking it, he said. You know what you paid in taxes this year. You will know next year whether it's going to go up or down, and that should be something that every Republican is excited about. That group has spent more than $24 million promoting the tax bill across 64 congressional districts since the start of August, and they plan to make it a centerpiece of all of their 2018 messaging. Bliss said, One party cut middle-class taxes. Another party spends all their time trying to impeach the president. That's a really nice contrast, he said. Well, the other parties spending all of their time trying to impeach the president may be a bit of an overstatement. In fact, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi has spent much more time trying to prevent her caucus from moving ahead with impeachment, much more time than in encouraging it. Liberal and progressive activists and media, on the other hand, that's a separate matter. Shortly after the indictment of Trump's former national security adviser Michael Flynn in early December, the New Republic's Jeet here described the ensuing excitement from partisans and activists on the left as an impeachment frenzy. He cited an essay from Vox.com founder Ezra Klein, who, uh, who he described as normally sober, as falling somewhat under the spell of that impeachment frenzy by posting an essay wherein Klein, while acknowledging that we haven't yet reached the stage where Trump's impeachability is beyond reasonable dispute, as it was, for example, with Richard Nixon in 1974, it was nonetheless uh, time to consider redefining the rules for impeachment so they apply to Trump, a president who has demonstrated that he is manifestly unfit for office. Impeachment is not a power we should take lightly, Klein wrote, nor is it one we should treat as too explosive to use. There will be presidents who are neither criminals nor mental incompetence, but who are simply wrong for the role, who pose a danger to the country and the world. Being extremely bad at the job of president of the United States should be enough to get you fired, Klein argued. Jeet here, however, disagreed with Klein's argument of essentially normalizing impeachment, even if it would become a political football that would come back to bite Democrats. He argues that, among other things, it serves only to distract those Democrats from doing the real work they ought to be uh, ought to be doing in order to win the midterm elections in the run up to 2018. At least if I have Jeet here's argument correct, 
Joining us now to find out if I have Jeet Here's argument correct is Jeet Here. He is the senior editor at The New Republic. He has published as well at places like The New Yorker and The Paris Review. He's author of two books, has co-edited eight, and has a very lively Twitter feed at HearJeet on the Twitters. Uh, Jeet Here, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It's great to be back. Lot to talk to you about today. I, I want to talk to you about impeachment, as I note, uh, and if Democrats are putting too many hopes into it and into the Mueller investigation as a whole and, and everything related there. But first, as Republicans and Donald Trump have finally passed uh, today what is regarded as their only major legislative achievement since taking office, uh, this massive tax cut bill for largely the wealthiest Americans. I want to get, I want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, will this... Will this legislation come back to haunt them in 2018, or will it be their uh, the, the ticket to reviving their fortunes, as those Republican activists cited by the Washington Post seem to uh, very uh, hopefully argue? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I think those activists uh, have a sort of monetary um, uh, interest in, <laughs> you know, Putting a bright side on things, right? But like, just looking at the polling, it's, it's very hard to see that. I mean, it's interesting. Like, Trump has you know been un- historically unpopular, but it's also steady. Like, he he tends to keep at you know thirty six, thirty seven, mm-hmm. thirty eight. But he's actually dipped. There's two occasions on which he dipped. One was when they tried to um, uh, repeal uh, Obamacare, mm-hmm. and uh, his polling like hit a low at that point, and uh, now it's hitting a new low. Um, with uh, the uh, the tax bill, so it seems like um, even his h- hardcore supporters are likely to uh, abandon him when he actually tries to enact policy. And now he has enacted, and I, I think that it's actually very bad news for Trump and the Republicans because he kind of won um, by like saying different things to different people. And he did sort of promise tax cuts, but he also said, you know, like, he's not the type of Republican that's going to uh, cut Medicare uh, and Social Security. Mm-hmm. He's not. Um, and he ran on a you know, real broadly populist theme that he's also going to go after Wall Street and hedge fund ma- hidden managers are not going to benefit from this. Now, Trump actually has a record. And uh, we can clearly see that the sort of populist promises uh, were just like uh, lies. This is yep. one of the most plutocratic tax bills imaginable. Uh, yeah, and of course he also said uh, he was not going to benefit from these tax cuts. It was going to hurt yeah. him and his rich friends. Obviously that's not true. And I say obviously, Jeet, because you and I pay attention to this stuff. I, I'm I'm concerned about the American public as a whole. You know, the GOP, uh, Mitch McConnell, etc., are already framing the debate today uh, for next year as, you know, Democrats want to raise your taxes. Now, that has worked before, whether that's true or not. It, it has worked. You know, will the American electorate fall for that again? Will they remember what happened by the time they get to the polls in November of 2018? Well, I mean... I think that the tax cuts are just the first part of a larger program. I mean, like, because of the tax cuts, uh, there's going to be deficits, and the only way to deal with those um, is to cut uh, entitlement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that that's going to be a real problem for the Republicans. And there's also... um, I mean, the uh, uh, they haven't been able to repeal Obamacare, but they're certainly, uh, through this bill, trying to gut it. And uh, so, I mean, I think that people see their, you know, get a very small tax cut, but their premiums are going up. I'm not sh- so sure that uh, uh, they're going to 
be that delighted. Um, I mean, I, I just basically think, like, you know, they now Donald Trump has a record, and the mm-hmm. Republicans have a record, and we know, like, at this moment, you know, the tax bill is hugely unpopular. Um, I mean, it is wildly unpopular with the po- population mm-hmm. at large, but it's also, like, very divisive among Republicans. And I, I would suggest that, especially um, among sort of uh, the new voters that Donald Trump brought to the party, the more, you know, white working class voters, they're not going to be the ones that see the benefits from this. And I think they'll have legitimate reasons to be upset. You're, uh, uh, you sound optimistic in that regard, and I don't disagree with you. I, I do have some concern. You know, Democrats have, have long made the case that the GOP wants to, uh, wants to cut Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, all of which would, you know, not be popular. And yet the American public doesn't, it hasn't seen, histor- seemed historically to be that concerned about it. Uh, now you've got Republicans obviously admitting out loud that that is now their plan to pay off this huge one and a half trillion dollar uh, uh, debt that they've uh, added to the to the to the national debt. Um, so uh, you feel that at least the that same Democratic argument that they've made in years past has now become more convincing or at least will be more convincing to voters in 2018? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a bunch of reasons to be more convincing. I mean, mm-hmm. what we've seen with, you know, Donald Trump's presidency is that he's basically, you know, continued with this sort of nativism and xenophobia as rhetoric, and but the actual economic policy is the Paul Ryan policy. And I don't think Paul Ryan's, you know, economic agenda is that popular. I, I think I see a big mistake mm. the Democrats made in the last election was not tying Donald Trump to Paul Ryan and saying, if you vote for Donald Trump, you're going to, like, you know, give Paul Ryan a chance to, like, uh, uh, remake the American economy through his vision. Well, uh, we will see, I guess, if you're right, I, I, uh, if those pieces come together, I guess if the Democrats can lay out that case to the American people. And that sort of takes us to this next point in your uh, in your piece. And this is what I had wanted to talk to you about initially uh, in your piece earlier this month at the New Republic. You argue that Democrats have what you describe as a dangerous obsession with impeachment. So I want to ask you, before we get into the meat of this piece here, uh, which Democrats are you talking about? Are you talking about elected officials or citizens and advocates? Because I don't see you know, Nancy Pelosi and the House uh, doing much at all in terms of impeachment, though I'd make the case that they actually should. So which Democrats are we talking about in, in your argument here, Jeet? Well, I mean, I, I'm talking about, like, the party as a whole, so mm-hmm. not necessarily elected officials. Oh, there are a few, but, I mean, you're, you're right. That's not where the uh, the, uh, the uh, elected officials are uh, at right now. But I think that, like, you know, like you look at the broader, um, you know, Democratic political base, and there's, like, a lot of interest in the Mueller investigation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, people talking about impeachment. And, uh, you know, there are sort of prominent writers like Ezra Klein who are, like, laying out the case for impeachment. So, I, I mean, I do think, and actually, if you look at the polling, I mean, I, I will say for one, one thing is, like, um, uh, I think uh, recent polling has shown that the number of people that support impeachment is greater than the number of people that oppose. So we're already kind of, in public opinion, got into a, a place where impeachment is thinkable. Uh, it, well, it is. And in uh, in Ezra's uh, uh, Vox essay, he argues essentially that impeachment should be considered when someone is clearly unfit for office, uh, when the American people have seemingly made a mistake 
at the ballot box. And, and when a president turns out, as, as Klein highlights, to be incredibly dangerous. I mean, uh, essentially, you know, threatening nuclear war against a regime like North Korea. You don't think that sort of thing, uh, particularly signs that a mentally unstable person has access to nuclear weapons, that that should be cause in and of itself for uh, for the case for for impeachment of a president? Well, there's there's two things. One is that there's already a remedy for that, which is the 25th Amendment. So um, if the uh, cabinet, uh, you know, thinks that Trump is mentally unfit, uh, uh, they can uh, they can apply that at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is. Uh, the actual, but that, that um, requires, to, to be fair, to be fair, gee, that would require the the president's cabinet itself making that decision. But I mean, the but but so you're saying it's practically impossible. But that also applies to impeachment itself. Uh, but secondly, I would add, like actually, you know, to be strictly constitutional, mm-hmm. impeachment, the uh, requirements for impeachment are high crimes and misdemeanor. Uh, and, like, that's a very vague phrase, and what it means that, uh, but I don't think that that encompasses mental incompetence. Like, it's not a crime to be mentally incompetent. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, but, but, I mean, I think impeachment, properly understood, is both a political and a legal process. And as a political process, it's just, like, very impractical, uh, because, you would need a majority mm-hmm. in the House. And I could easily see a majority coming, especially after the midterms, where they would have a majority. But in the best-case scenario, but you also need, for impeachment to be actually effective, which would remove Trump from office, you would need two-thirds of the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the best-case scenario, uh, you know, Democrats could, if they get their maximum victories, you know, have like, you know, 52, 53 Senate seats. Uh, uh, after the next election, mm-hmm. and th- so so you would need Republicans, and there's like really no sign that the Republicans uh, are on board with us uh, right now. So like just as a practical matter, it's like um, you know at best like a year down the road you could impeach Trump, but then you would to actually like make that like meaningful. Uh, you would have to have the Republicans going on board, and and there's actually a lot of signs that the Republicans. Uh, it's not just that they're sticking with Trump. They're actually, a lot of them are becoming more loyal to him mm. uh, through this process. I mean, I think that Trump has um, really played to Republican uh, paranoia about um, uh, the media and about uh, the Mueller investigation. Uh, and so I think, like, politically, it's very difficult right now. I, I, I would even go further and say, like, it's, un- it's a very different world than, like, you know, 1973, 74. Uh, where, you know, you obviously had partisanship, but you had, like, you know, figures like Barry Goldwater, who, you know, like, once they heard the Watergate tapes, they said, like, well, you know, this guy is guilty, and we have to go. And they went to Nixon and said, we can't support you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to imagine what would actually lead the Republican Senate to get 15, you know, 16 Republican senators mm-hmm. to, like, support impeaching. Like, like in all honesty, if, they, if it turns out that the P-tape is true, um, the the way partisanship works right now, you'd suddenly have Republicans saying, you know, golden showers are great. They're American, <laughs> you know, like George Washington probably did it. Uh, I, I, well, you know, I, I cheat. I, I'm I'm asking you these questions because I got to say, I, I admit, I, I am of two minds here. I'm of, of at least a mixed mind here. I I appreciate yeah. what you're what you're arguing here, and I think 
I've got a, a question I want to get to as far as what Democrats should be doing and the case that you uh, lay out there that I completely agree with. But so I kind of want want you to uh, I, I want to be convinced of what you are arguing, because setting all partisan considerations aside, I see Trump as wildly dangerous, as wholly unfit for the office, and uh, has already been revealed to have done more than enough to meet the bar for impeachments, if only uh, if only on the emoluments clause, if we start there. And that's setting all yeah, the partisan yeah, yeah. considerations yeah. aside, whether Demo- uh, whether uh, you know Republicans will, will go along with it. Um, at the same time, I also think the Democrats are placing far too much hope in the special counsel investigation and they are not being clear and, and, and aggressive enough and with a positive message for what they have to offer to the American people. But w- when you have someone who is so wildly unfit, as I see it, and, uh, you know, I think arguably has met the bar for impeachment, whether it can be successful at or not, isn't there a case to be made for laying out that case for the American people, uh, bringing these articles of impeachment, whether they are successful or not, or not as, uh, as, as if only as a, uh, making the moral case for what should be in this country? Well, I mean, I definitely think, like, all these things should be investigated. Uh, and they, they, um, and I, I think that that's a further sort of argument for keeping things in the political realm as much as possible. Like, I think it's not just the fact that, you know, Trump is dangerous. It's like you have so much power vested in the presidency, Mm -hmm. and a lot of that power really should be in Congress. So if the Democrats could run on saying, like, you know, this guy is, uh, who's very unpopular, is also very dangerous, and he needs to be checked. And Congress currently isn't checking Trump at all. And I think if they're, once they gain the House and, you know, with luck, the Senate, uh, they can really investigate him, mm-hmm. and can really, uh, and I think that that would be the that would be the next step to take. Uh, I mean, impeachment. I, I I I think that there's a good case for impeachment right now, but I actually think that, like, as I said, it's a political process as well as a legal process. So I don't. I think it's not just enough that you know you can prove someone is guilty. Um, you actually have to be able to convince a jury. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, like someone can be clearly guilty, that's OJ, mm-hmm. and you still can't convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. So in some ways, uh, if we think of it as a process where the jury includes, you know, Republican senators, and more broadly, like, you know, Republicans throughout the country, like I think we need to get to a place where Republicans are convinced of impeachment as well. Like there's, there's mm-hmm. really no way to have a partisan impeachment. You you charge uh, along those lines in in your piece at New Republic that the mass uh, that mass Republican defections from Trump has grown harder, not easier to imagine. It's grown harder because the last six months have demonstrated that GOP voters will stick with Trump despite his lunacy and punish those Republican politicians who do not. But uh, don't elections like what we saw in uh, in Virginia last month and even in Alabama this month. Uh, doesn't that suggest otherwise that, you know, the voters are not sticking with Trump, not sticking with the Republicans, and the Democrats may have more support out there for something like this than uh, they or you or even I uh, may think? Um, well, I mean, it depends on the election, and it really depends on the sort of the calculus for Republican politicians um might be like you know they're losing people there are definitely people that are staying home or going to the democrats but they would be in a much worse position if they 
take on Trump. If you look at like Republican politicians who have made even the mildest criticism of Trump, like John McCain mm-hmm. or uh, Flake or uh, Bob Corker, uh, you know their polling is really you know like down the drain. Uh, they're uh, you know widely reviled, and even Mitch McConnell's polling is doing very badly uh, because uh, Trump has blamed him mm-hmm. uh, for for not carrying out stuff. So. Uh, I mean, they're in a really difficult position because their most hardcore supporters, the ones they really need to show up, uh, will turn on them if they go against Trump. You uh, you argue looking forward here that the most promising route for stopping Trump is through the ballot box. And on that, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, you, you argue that Democrats need a convincing platform and effective organization to win elections at every level. So... Do Democrats yet have such a platform or organization to win at every level in uh, in 2018, Jeet, or are they taking uh, d- d- putting too much stock in uh, whatever Robert Mueller may or may not come out with uh, in his special counsel investigation? Oh, I know. I'm I'm fairly hopeful about like the Democrats. I mean, I do feel like they um, the the recent elections have been very heartening. Uh, especially like you know, I mean, Virginia has been trending blue for a while, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, like the win in Alabama is really something, uh, and there's a lot of grassroots enthusiasm. Um, they are sort of you know uh, putting together like a message. Uh, uh, the party is like becoming more sort of solidly populist in its economic platform. So I, I, I think that uh, yeah, I think the party uh, can sort of come together. But I mean, I think it's very important. Um, I mean, it's also the case, like, Trump is not always going to be there. Like, I think, you know, like, I think that they'll do very well Mm -hmm. in the next uh, election in 2018 and 2020. But you have to kind of, you know, have a message that can carry you through elections where Trump is not on the ballot. No, exactly. And that's what I worry about. I mean, and not just the Democrats are relying on, uh, you know, or or hopeful about the special counsel investigation, but they're also relying on, uh, you know, this anti-Trump fervor, which is definitely there. It was also there before 2016 election, by the way. So I, my concern here is that I, I don't yet know. It doesn't feel to me like they have spelled out a clear, progressive agenda, a, a, a positive agenda that voters know what they are voting uh, in favor of rather than voting against at the ballot box. And that may help, you know, they, there, there may be enough anti-Trump fervor out there to uh, put Democrats in in 2018. But as you note, they need a positive message going forward, a positive, clear message going forward. Um, do they know that? Do you see such a message yet emerging? Or is this something that uh, folks like you and me need to keep egging them on about at this point? Well, yeah, I mean, they're not totally there. But, I mean, if you look at, like, the number of uh, senators that have been willing to sign on for the idea of, you know, Medicare for all, mm-hmm. uh, or if you look at, you know, their increasing um, support for things like the minim- uh, $15 minimum wage, I mean, I do think that there is a clear tendency of the party uh, towards economic populism. And that, that, that um, so, so I, I feel like uh, uh that's where they're going to kind of end up, and I think that'll be a uh, that'll be a good spot for them. Um, I mean, I, I I mean, one interesting thing that from the recent elections is that you know um, you had candidates that uh, uh, were pretty uh, unapologetically liberal on a few like issues, uh, but you know presented themselves in a very moderate way. So I think both like Northam and um, 
uh, Jones mm-hmm. uh, uh, kind of fit uh, that pattern, and so that's kind of interesting as well. Like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, in Alabama, Jones is you know like you know like uh, uh, completely supports reproductive freedom, which is a very controversial stance in Alabama, and uh, he was able to win. Last question on the other side of that coin, Jeet, uh will. Uh, the progressives who are not satisfied with, uh, you know, with candidates like Doug Jones or Ralph Northam, uh, because they're trying to, you know, those candidates are trying to win amongst their actual electorate. Will there be a, uh, a, a, a backlash against Democrats for not going progressive enough in their message in uh, in 2018? Or, or is the left finally uh, figuring out that it's a case by case matter, depending on where they're running? I think for 2018, it's not a problem just because the desire to, like, you know, uh, defeat the Republicans and Trump is so strong. I think the larger issue is, like, you know, what's going to happen, at, you know, if they regain the House and, uh, and Senate or if they gain, get the presidency in 2020. Like, I think the, the anti-message can maybe sweep them back into power, but, like, there's a lot of people that are, a lot of those people that you described are ready to, would probably be ready to defect, you know, once Trump is no longer an issue. Uh, yeah, well, we'll we'll start uh, loading up for the circular firing squad if that happens <laughs> after uh, after the 2018 elections. Uh, Gene here, senior editor at the New Republic. You can find his work at newrepublic.com and on the Twitters at here Jeet. Uh, Jeet, really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, hope you can have a uh, you and yours will have a peaceful and somehow uh, quiet uh, holiday uh, season in the days ahead. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Jeet. Okay, thank you. All right. A quick break, and we're back with our last few minutes on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep. It was in the middle of the night that Republicans finally passed their uh, huge tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy and their more modest tax cuts that will expire for the poor and middle class. The middle of the night is when they finally got this through the U.S. Senate on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Bernie Sanders, uh, independent Vermont senator, was not happy about it. Here's his comments after final passage in the U.S. Senate. Today, in an unprecedented manner, we are witnessing highway robbery in broad daylight and a looting of the federal treasury. Today is a victory for the Koch brothers and other wealthy Republican campaign contributors who will see huge tax breaks for themselves while driving up the federal deficit by 1.5% trillion dollars. Today is a victory for the largest and most profitable corporations in our country, like Apple, Microsoft, Pfizer, and General Electric, who despite record-breaking profits, will now see hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks. 
We are living in a moment in American history of massive income and wealth inequality, when the very rich are becoming richer while most Americans are becoming poorer. Yet, according to the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center, this legislation at the end of 10 years will provide 83% of the tax benefits to the top 1% and 60% of the benefits to the top one-tenth of 1%. Meanwhile, some 92 million middle-class households will, by the end of the decade, be paying more in taxes. Huge tax breaks for billionaires, higher taxes for millions of middle-class families. Nobody except Republican campaign contributors think that that makes any sense at all. It does say something about Republican priorities when the tax breaks for corporations are permanent while the tax breaks for the middle class are temporary and expire at the end of eight years. Furthermore, I hope that every American is listening closely to what Speaker of the House Paul Ryan is talking about and what other Republicans are discussing. And that is to offset the $1.5 trillion in deficits they are creating with this bill. What Ryan and others are making clear is they are coming back to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs desperately needed by the middle class. Now, every American knows that during his campaign for the presidency, Donald Trump said over and over again, he would not cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And I say to the president, for once in your life, keep your word. Tell the Republican leadership that you will veto any legislation that cuts Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. That was Vermont, Bernie, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders last night after passage of the this massive uh, tax bill in the U.S. Senate. We will have to talk about all of that on another day because we're running late. Thanks, Virginia voters. I got to get out. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to my guest today, Jeet here of New Republic, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime at bradblog.com for free. Though we do thank those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate uh, to support our work and support us continuing that work into the new year, if possible. We rely on you. That's it. Oh, you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Blog. That's really it. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>